0: Welcome to the Macomb Israel Teacher's Lounge podcast, where we connect students and listeners to what's happening in Israel and give you insight behind the headlines. Yeah, cool. I'm your host, Michael Unterberg, here as always with co-host Alan Goldman. How are you, Alan?
1: Thank God, Mike. Doing okay. July and has ju- come.
0: July has come. We are in July. <laughs> exactly. And so we have a special guest. Would you please introduce him, Alan?
1: Uh, Khaviv Redigore, who is uh, uh, a uh, returning guest to us, who's... Um, um, a political analyst and a, an editor at the times of Israel um, who is our go-to guy um, for what's happening uh, you know in politics especially um, uh, when we talk about now the annexation and uh, and other issues so thank you so much javi for being here with us
0: thank you for having me and it's a it's a bit of a it's a complicated topic so let's just say that we're not Because Makom is under the Jewish agency, the opinions expressed in this conversation are our individual opinions. We're not speaking on behalf of the Makom or the Jewish agency or anything like that. Well, I guess the question I would like to start off with is, what happened
2: to July 1st, Khabib? Yeah. No, I I don't think anything happened. Um, (laughs) The coalition agreement says that starting July 1st, um, and the theory was by July 1st, the coronavirus would either be in recession um, and the government could begin to think about other things, um, or uh, or it would be exploding, and then the government would reprioritize. So whatever's in the coalition agreement doesn't matter anyway. Um, but um, and so starting July first, Netanyahu can begin the process of bringing a decision to the cabinet or the Knesset. Uh, and Netanyahu has just said the uh, the mapping isn't finished. The, the 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 technical mapping, the mapping of exactly which hill and exactly how and exactly where a tunnel would be dug in the sort of principles of the Trump plan, which is just a bunch of principles. We're going to connect these two cities with a tunnel, it says in the Trump plan. Uh, and somebody has to figure out, you know, what tunnel, which tunnel, how, where, why, you know, how you make sure that the the gradients of the various engineering projects that have to happen for that uh, are, are reasonable. So all that work is still being done. It's being done by an American-Israeli team that isn't talking to anyone the army, uh, the, uh, the journalists, the public—so um, it's all being done a little bit in the shadows. Uh, but it is being done, and until it's finished, <clears throat> there's no decision to bring forward. So, July 1st was just the beginning of Netanyahu's window for being able to present something.
1: But he, uh, if he I, said correct, it's not quite ready. Well, correctly, if I'm wrong, he was pushing this hype of July 1st. No, wasn't he the one saying July 1st? Fir- wasn't he pushing that hype, or is that did I misread the no he the media? <laughs>
2: His handling of it has been silly. Um, um, So, for example, uh, back in January, before the March election, um, his spokesman tweeted that, um, I think it was on January 28th, um, his spokesman tweeted uh, right after the White House announcement, and the you know coming back from the triumphant White House, standing next to Donald Trump, saying, "We will recognize if Israel's um, right or sovereignty." Or I forget exactly how Trump said it. To whatever the Trump plan gives Israel, um, his spokesman tweets, uh, "Come Sunday." You know sovereignty, which yeah. means annexation, right. um, and so he's—he's he's, you know I, I, I think February first he was supposed to annex uh, part of the West Bank, thirty percent of the West Bank, uh, and then he said July first is July first, and it means something, and uh, so everyone said, well, so he's going to announce some kind of you know within. There's some maps you don't need to map because they're already mapped, like the lands controlled by the settlements, which makes up about 10% of the West Bank, or the actual built-up areas inside the settlements where people actually live, which makes up about 3% of the West Bank. You could just announce that those are Israel. So people thought he Mm -hmm. might be doing something like that. It was all very vague. A lot of it was just sort of posturing. So anyway, I, I, I don't think July 1st was dramatic, and I don't think there's a setback in us not hearing anything on July 1st. In other words, the uh, opponents of annexation should not be celebrating.
1: Right. All right. So, uh, and, go ahead, Alan. No, I'm just, uh, I, I'm just like, I, I'm confused, right? I'm confused about this whole thing. Well, first of all, there's also the semantics, which I think is confusing to people, sovereignty versus annexation, if it's just semantics and it's either here or year. But then also, like, what. What does Israel get out of this whole thing? Like, why? Why? You know, why is Netanyahu pushing it? What are we getting?
2: That's a. Not only is a you know that's the question, um, and that's the question everyone has been asking. Um, and I think um, there's a debate going on right now in the Israeli. Uh, there's a debate going on in the Israeli you know public uh, discussion over what it is that most Israelis aren't sure we're getting anything significant. And I think it divides essentially into two camps. One camp says exactly what you said, right? Uh, Donald Trump is going to recognize an Israeli claim to ownership over 3%, 10%, 17% if Netanyahu's Jordan Valley is 17% of the West Bank, Trump's Jordan Valley is 22% of the West Bank. The maps themselves don't line up. Right. Um, So I think that the, the, there's a debate over what we get, right? If Trump Trump recognizes that uh, annexation, that claim to sovereignty but then Donald Trump is replaced by Joe Biden, what have you accomplished? Exactly. What have you accomplished? Now, uh, the move of the embassy to Jerusalem is significant because to move the embassy back out of Jerusalem, Congress would have to pass a different law, and so that might be something stable and significant. But, you know, President Trump recognized our control of the Golan Heights, and the question becomes, it was just a presidential order. Joe Biden, in the first nine seconds of his presidency, however long it takes to print something in the White House, Uh, could de-recognize our, you know what I mean? So what if we get pocketed when Trump gives us something because of all the other stuff around Trump and how how problematic Trump has been uh, in American domestic politics. And so that's this, that's this, right? Joe Biden shows up and he will have an interest. We saw this when Um, um, when um, uh, Obama replaced Bush, and the Obama administration was very keen on showing that they're not Bush, they're the anti-Bush, to the point where they embarked on foreign policies just because it looked like it wasn't Bush, and they were very foolish foreign policies, like uh, ignoring Israel in his first tour of of the Middle East when he gave speeches in Cairo and in Istanbul. Um, and and telling Israelis that he was not staying in Israel because he wants to reset the the relationship with the Muslim world so he was Mm -hmm. not visiting Israel. Uh, We saw that with Trump coming into power and saying, whatever the hell Obama was, that's not what I am, right? So cancel Obamacare. Well, replace it with what? Obamacare itself is a single-payer system first proposed by the American Enterprise Institute. But we're just going to not have this issue. Um, America's in a... A, a backlash voting cycle.
0: Yes. Where it's throw the bums out and let's choose the other approach. More and it keeps than
2: ever. pendular. Now yeah. get a gift from Trump. So what? Well, that's what, exactly what so that's my point.
1: So, so that's what's confusing me. So why is it that, I mean, he's not dumb. That, you know, a smart guy.
2: He so understands
1: the what is he, what is he? What is he that I don't understand? That I'm, what is he saying that i understanding?
2: Um, My editor asked me this question. What the hell is BB? Why? Why? We've published 1,100 smart people all explaining why this is silly. We yeah. don't get anything. We already control the West Bank. We already right. to take control. We're already building settlements. What do we get by claiming it? And the price is obvious. The future uh, cooperation with the European Union, the European Union is our major trading block. When the <laughs> European Union decides it doesn't like us and doesn't want us in the next major scientific R&D uh, project, that's billions mm-hmm. lost to Israeli higher education. That's not small. Right. That is our major trading block, larger than the United States. So, what are we getting? Not to mention
0: the thawing with the Sunni Arab world. The
2: thaw with the Sunni Arab world is theoretically, uh, and Jim Netanyahu keeps telling us, is strategic. It's, it's the difference between life and death in right. the future as we oppose Iran together. What are we getting? There is a camp uh, that Netanyahu belongs to, uh, and this is a piece I'm working on, so this is, you're getting it ahead of time. Yeah, oh, now you cool. don't. Have, now you don't have to read the piece. Well, that, <laughs> but, that's, um, why
1: we, that's why we. bring you on because you answer my questions. Yeah, that's, we're, why we're the, that's, yeah. that's why I read you all the time. That's why I read all the time. That's why I read you all the time because you answer my questions.
2: You should still. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you should still read it and click on the ads, obviously. Oh, but,
1: I, will. Um, I will. I will. But, don't um, don't
0: um, I don't click on ads because I pay the uh, six dollars uh, a month. Uh,
1: I,
2: let's talk about that for the last ten minutes of the conversation. That's. Well, I
0: use it all the time. I felt, not guilty, but I felt like it was a fair oh, request. Oh, really? I, I don't.
2: Okay. <laughs> well, good. Well done. Um, so um, there is a camp uh, that says, essentially, and it's a profound uh, statement and argument, uh, it's not to be taken lightly, and it says as follows. Um, there isn't actually an international diplomatic and legal order. There hasn't been for decades. What there is, mm-hmm. what runs the world, is American power. American power and the, the fact that Americans, like many superpower empires over the uh, over the millennia, uh, like to pretend that they're moral. That there's this moral, uh, you know. Um, um, uh, uh, structure moral reasoning, moral imperative behind their actions and behind how they run global commerce and the global financial system and all these things, which are American. The American Navy keeps the the, the ocean sea lanes open for everyone else to buy things from Amazon, right? The, the the United States has run the world. I mean that. I mean that literally. I mean that literally. You will find American aircraft carriers patrolling exactly in the places that are the bottlenecks of global commerce on the on the high seas. And and it has been that way since the end of World War II. And there hasn't been anyone else doing it. The Soviet Union was a disruptor, and the Soviet economy was never more than I don't know the numbers, but it wasn't ten percent of the American economy at the height of the Cold War. In other words, it really was the <laughs> Americans' world. But hasn't the American hegemony been
0: in decline for like 20 years? Exactly.
2: Now, I mean, to the extent that everyone talks about the Nuremberg trials starting modern international law, humanitarian and human rights international law, and nobody notices that the Nuremberg trials were military tribunals in the United States military apparatus of the Allied Command. In other words, it's American Mm -hmm. power that likes to talk about itself as a moral structure, superstructure, Mm -hmm. and, and law. It was the Pax Americana. Yes. Now, American power isn't just declining, it's crumbling. It's crumbling fast. And it's crumbling so fast that you now have, I think, one military vessel in the Mediterranean for the U.S. Navy. A single one. The entire U.S. 5th Fleet is this theoretical construct that can absorb ships sent to it if there's a war in Libya. But it, it, it doesn't have actual ships in the sea and and you see now that the russians have put in a base in in hamim in syria and are and are, are are running that area turkey and libya have this naval agreement that their territorial waters extend to each other and essentially divide mm-hmm. Egypt, Israel, Cyprus, and Greece. Now, these are, this is a massive violation of international law. There's the, the 1982 Treaty of the High Seas and of the, UN, the UN Treaty of the Seas, massive violation of international law, but who's going to enforce it? The Americans aren't here to tell Turkey to shut up. And, and so nobody is enforcing it. And the question is, can the Greeks and the Israelis put together a navy that tells the Turks to go home? We're, we're, we're back to the jungle. Now, what does that mean? That means that we can even less agree to surrender the Jordan Valley than we might have been able to 25 years ago if the Americans promised to protect us. Now, Israelis generally don't believe in being protected by anyone else. It's a little bit of an obsession uh, with Israelis because of the history, because of both Israeli history right. and because of Jewish history in the 20th century.
1: Um, the first Gulf of- War notwithstanding...
2: Right, but the first Gulf War was a trauma. And, uh, yeah, yeah. and the experience of the French in the 60s turning on us after 67 and having to, uh, well, we, we didn't immediately turn to the Americans and start buying F-4 Phantoms. We built our own kfirs and merkavas uh, right. just to be independent. So. Um, Look, I, by the way, I would say it's part of, at least in several
0: formulations of Zionism. The idea that we don't put Absolutely. our security in anyone else's hands is It's is profound.
2: To the day he died, Misha Ahrens, the former defense minister, and sort of the, who was also an aerospace engineer and the architect of the KFIR program and the, its biggest defender, uh, was bitterly complaining to the day he died a couple of years ago um, that we had given up on our indigenous fighter plane program for the, in favor of American planes. And, mm-hmm. and, and this runs deep. It runs deep through our defense planning, it runs deep through our culture, it runs deep through Zionist ideas. Uh, It runs deep. Now, looked at in a world that no longer assumes there's such a thing as international law, but thinks that international law is a vocabulary through which people feel better for talking about international power. No different from the Roman Empire. For a thousand years, the Roman Empire expanded and expanded and expanded and somehow never fought a war that wasn't a defensive war under Roman (laughs) law. Never, not one. Uh, You know, it's, it's it's not different from that. And, and, um, and, and you look at that and then you say, well, we have to hold the Jordan Valley. The Europeans don't matter because the Europeans don't project power. They don't know how. They're so scared of themselves. They're so scared of the idea that power matters. They're so committed to the idea that international law is real. Uh, that they've actually been unable to do things that are of fundamental strategic importance for themselves. Ha- stopping the Syria conflict and stopping the millions flowing out of Syria is a right. fundamental strategic imperative for Europe. And Europe hasn't been able to even to even get right. anyone to listen, right? Europe, Europe's, compare right. Europe's economy to Russia's economy. Compare Germany, France, Italy, uh, you know, Austria, and Britain as a unit and the Scandinavians as a unit to Russia you have something an order of magnitude larger but it has no capacity to project power because it literally can't send an airplane anywhere in the world because it believes in international law so the Europeans won't actually sanction us we really genuinely strategically and on this I think Benny Gantz in the center and even large parts of the left agree we really can't in terms of security leave the Jordan Valley and then you start looking at all these downsides that everyone's talking about the Jordanians are going to cancel the peace treaty The Jordanians are desperate not to have the Jordan Valley controlled by a Palestinian state in which Turkey and Muslim brothers and and, and all the different terrorist entities that always plagued Jordan until 1970, until Israel became Jordan's military protector when it stopped a Syrian invasion into Jordan. Um, All the things that plagued Jordan stopped plaguing Jordan when Israel became its military protector, and Jordan won't give up that treaty. Now, it'll pretend to give up the treaty, it'll scream, it'll shout, and it'll secretly be grateful that we remain forever in control of Jordan Valley, stabilizing Jordan, stabilizing Israel, and who cares about the Palestinians? The Jordanian king pretends to care about Palestinian rights, but is a dictator overseeing a majority Palestinian population. So it's... <laughs> It's not silly for Israelis to take a little bit of a, with a grain of salt the Jordanian, you know, concern about Palestinian rights. Right. Um, the United Arab Emirates, not only do they not care about the Palestinians, they don't even, the idea that the United Arab Emirates, who are now saying, you know, if you don't annex, there's deeper ties. Well, that's really them using this as an excuse to say, hey, we're going for deeper ties. Give us a sufficiently <laughs> modest annexation that we can still deepen the ties and do so publicly. Huh? It's, a, it's, the, it, it's saying the opposite of what it's saying. Um, that, that's the interpret. I'll stop there. They, they have a whole list of why the annexation move doesn't cost what it costs. It reflects deep strategic realities, and it gives us one huge advantage, and this is a power advantage and a hard strategic advantage, and it is this. Wherever the Israeli-Jewish consensus goes, that's the most powerful factor in determining the future border.
0: Hmm.
2: go defy I mean you're the United States Navy go defy the Israeli Jewish consensus on something having to do with Israel's borders it's awfully hard to do nobody's going to bomb us because we're not Serbia in the sense of we're competent it's hard to bomb us nobody is going to sanction us in any meaningful way because there's always the other guy we can turn to you know the united states doesn't want our tech going to china so it's not going to sanction us the europeans aren't going to sanction us the french actually considered sanctioning us in the second intifada and there was a bill presented in parliament and then they discovered that there's 9 billion dollar trade uh, a year between the two countries and they table and they uh, you know they threw out the bill in other words they thought the palestinians were being massacred but that's not worth 9 billion dollars a year um, was the statement so, the French made openly back in 2000. That's not so, changed.
1: So let me see if I can hear, hear what you're saying, if I can s- s- summarize it, if I got it. So basically, the, the old Zionist idea of where you put your foot is where your border is going to be, that this gives the ability to make a, 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 a significant step towards fixing Israel's final borders, which we don't have, um, with very little backlash from... From all these countries, it's so all maybe lip service at most is what's going to happen to Israel. So therefore, that's what Netanyahu feels like is getting at it: Fi- a, a much more secure service, border, but yeah. there won't be enough that it's not worth it. Right. In other words, the, the the setting some kind of definitive idea on a final border is worth the minimal, you know, backlash that's going to happen from it. Right,
2: and, and, and part of the reason the far right is angry is because they're rejecting that
0: as exactly, the final right. border. They want the border
2: right. further. The far ends. right thinks this is actually happening. This is actually going to be a border. And what right. happens if a Joe Biden doesn't accept the border?
1: Right.
2: The audience isn't the American president, even though it looks like right. it is. We're pretending it is because when right. you, this particular American president, when you stroke his ego, you get you get everything for nothing for stroking mm-hmm. his ego. So right. why not? But actually, if Joe Biden comes in and says, I don't recognize whatever Trump recognizes, it doesn't matter. The Israeli uh, consensus has shifted by this move. And the Israeli consensus is a powerful thing. And if we actually need to hold on to the Jordan Valley, which is the Alon plan, which is Rabin, October 1995, he gave his last speech in the Mm -hmm. Knesset. He laid out this plan holding the Jordan Valley. There is no Israeli defense planner who wants to go back to nine miles wide at the middle. Those people don't exist. And if they exist, they've been in politics so long that they don't count as a defense planner anymore. Um, <laughs> I, I mean that genuine. Well, when, you are, when you're going through the international downsides, what about the
0: domestic security downside of creating a, a, or instigating another intifada? Or is that not a realistic... It, in other words, what you've been doing so far is explaining the Netanyahu position yeah. of why to move forward. What about what, How do they deal with the question of into, you know, internal Palestinian, you know, uprisings. Yeah,
2: it's a, that's, a, that's a very good question. It's even a larger question than the Palestinians. Um, Netanyahu's vision of the Middle East is a, is a Middle East essentially divided into um, a few axes. And if you understand the axes, you understand events in the Middle East much better than if you if you think borders matter. Uh, and, there's, and, and these are mm-hmm. axes we're very familiar with. There's the Muslim Brotherhood Axis which is an ideological axis. It includes Hamas. It includes the AKP that run Turkey today. It includes Qatar. It includes the Muslim Brothers in Egypt, which is much more than an organization. It's it's an entire subculture. Um, And uh, and they're an axis, and they defend each other and fund each other. Turkey is funding the pro-Hamas activist groups in Jerusalem fighting to defend Al-Aqsa. In other words, there's this whole string of um, Turkey protects terror groups in Syria in northern Syria and has sent its army to protect them because it doesn't consider them terror groups, it considers them Muslim brothers. Um, And uh, then you have the, the, I don't know what to call it, the conservative Sunni camp, the Saudis, the Jordanians, the Egyptian army, which is much, much more than an army in the Egyptian context. It, is a, a, it owns large parts of the economy. It's a, it's, a, it's, the it's, its own culture. Yeah. It's its own state within a right. state, and it's part of how Egypt runs and how Egypt thinks of itself.
1: It's deeply right. intertwined with Egyptian the, national right. identity. It's the controlling faction in the state, the army.
2: Right, and, uh, and, and it has wide popular support. In other words, it's also a real right. social phenomenon. So the Egyptian army, when the Egyptian army and the, and the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood had a civil war back in 2014, it really was a civil war. And, uh, and the Egyptian army belongs to the conservative Sunni camp. And we have an alliance with this conservative Sunni camp, the UAE, the, 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 the Saudis, the Jordanians, the Egyptian army, against the Shiite, the third axis, which is the Shiites, including the Alawites of Egypt, which is the Assad regime, and the Hezbollah of Lebanon, and the Houthis of Yemen, and all of that. Um, and once you see those axes... Everything in the Middle East makes sense. If you stop thinking of Iraq as a state, and start thinking of Iraq as an arena that contains players belonging to these axes, where all these axes are invested and are, and are maneuvering around each other, everything suddenly falls into place. So when mm-hmm. the annexation undermines Fatah, undermines the Palestinian Authority, prevents Abbas from being able to maintain security in the West Bank and actually maybe sparks an intifada that won't come in a vacuum. Hamas is actively working to turn annexation into a West Bank intifada. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: One of the criticisms of Netanyahu, my criticism of Netanyahu, that I have leveled at him uh, over the last month, uh, has been that he's abandoning his own vision of how the Middle East works. Because he's giving ammunition by annexing. He's actually weakening Jordan. He's weakening the UAE. He's weakening the Egyptian army. He's weakening, uh, you know, in favor of strengthening the Shiites and, and the Muslim brothers of, you know, Hamas and Turkey and all of these. And they're all maneuvering to take advantage. And, and so they're they're, they're, and they're they're powerfully maneuvering to take advantage. And we see it. And they're not sad about annexation. They're excited about annexation. Annexation for them is a huge, tremendous boon. And they plan to... You know, so it's right. it's it's bigger than a tifada. It's a recruitment drive. It's a drive. massive recruitment drive,
1: and and a, it's a vindication. It's a morale booster. A morale booster, a, right?
2: <laughs> and the conservative Sunni regimes, who all say, "Look, Israel isn't going anywhere." The real danger is revolutionary Shiism. Let's all fight together against the evil Persians. Um, are undermined because it turns out the Jewish expansionist Zionist colonialist imperialist impulse uh, is real. And it's not Arab propaganda, because the Jews are playing into that, or doing exactly that. So it, it, there's a, it's an intifada, but it's a more than intifada. It's a strengthening of all the forces mm-hmm. in the Middle East, mm-hmm. driving future intifadas. Um, and, and that's a downside. And that's a big, deep downside that you don't need uh, international law for. You know, you don't need to resort to silly moralizing uh, to Correct. talk about. Right. Wow, that was a great question. And that, I uh, yeah. It was so thought and through. The, so, what's the answer? Uh, I, I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm an objective journalist. I'm not going to tell you what's right or wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is a per- <laughs> uh, no, no, what's no. no what's Netanyahu's, Netanyahu's
1: answer. What,
0: what is Netanyahu's reasoning to? I, I mean, does uh, what do you what if you were in a conversation with Netanyahu? What do you honesty, imagine you would in say? a
2: closed room with two thoughtful, serious people? Take Netanyahu as a representative of the pro-annexation position, and take um, uh, Amos Yadlin, as a, who is a former, uh, right now he heads a think tank at Tel Aviv University, and is the former head of the Israeli military intelligence, and is considered a very deep and thoughtful man. Um, and you put these two guys in the room and make sure there are no cameras. What's the and, and Yadlin opposes annexation now, yeah, yeah. in part because of the regional the regional fallout. Um, and you say to them, what's right. you know debate this with no cameras. I think that the end is, right. the end result is the real question boils down to um, an impossible to determine, to actually set down in stone, assessment of uh, which is the greater danger, what fallout we can absorb more easily. Um, Netanyahu believes annexation has downsides, but the upside of the Jordan Valley becoming immovable and, and changing the future negotiating table... Um, and even forcing the Palestinians to recognize that and change their negotiating position. That upside is worth whatever we absorb from Iran and Turkey and, and Hamas and all of that. And uh, Yadlin will say it is less clear that we are getting the Jordan Valley in a more serious way, you know, something that we can pocket, than, than what Netanyahu thinks. It, uh, the Israeli consensus matters a little bit less than Netanyahu calculates, and the regional fallout will be a little bit more... In other words, it's, it's, it's a matter of, um, of a degree. They both agree that they'd like to keep the Jordan Valley. All Israeli really defense planning elites believe that we need to keep the Jordan Valley. And they both agree that uh, there are downsides to annexation. And the question is where you think the, the preponderance of, of costs and the preponderance of benefits lie. And that is the real debate happening in Hebrew among the actual policy planning people, where Benny Gantz and Benjamin Netanyahu, I have to say, um, and I know this directly, um, almost entirely agree. And Gabi Ashkenazi mm. is on the Yadlin side. Uh, and so within Blue mm. and White, there's a bigger
1: divide. than between So just Gantz and as Netanyahu. Gabi, Gabi Ashkenazi, who is the, now the foreign minister who was also a previous uh, chief of staff, as was Benny Gantz, uh, who is the defense minister now in the coalition government. Um, right. Is it also that that yeah. the perception of the building for an intifada, like we've had since the second intifada, there have been a lot of stop and starts. So oh, this is going to cause an intifada. This is going to cause an intifada, especially in the last years of the Trump that it's been like an Israeli, like Israelis are just like, OK, let's just stop with that threat. We're not, the Palestinians aren't that strong. They don't have the motivation on the ground. They don't have the they don't have the networks, the, those kinds of things that they had. Before a second intifada,
2: I think you're absolutely right. I also think Israelis are immune to intifadas because the Palestinians overplayed their hand. Uh, Let me put that. Let me make that more clear. The Israelis believe that the intifada isn't about changing a specific policy, but about lamenting their existence. I don't know if the Israelis are right, but that is what Israeli Jews, by and large, believe. The intifada. The, the mass, you know, 140 suicide bombings blowing up on our kids was not really about, at the height of the peace process, of the Oslo peace process, right. was not really about withdrawing a little further or taking down one more settlement. It was about refusing to pay the cost of our withdrawal, which is peace, which is, which is reconciliation. And that's what Israelis believe. And so another intifada will have the opposite effect from what the Palestinians think, because Israelis are convinced there's nothing they can do to stop the intifadas. And so it'll, it'll be a security crackdown, and it won't, it, won't be a, uh, it won't change Israeli behavior. It's not something Israelis believe they can stop, and so it's not something Israelis see as a cost, as an opportunity cost for taking another path.
1: Mm.
0: Do, you, do you take anything from Abbas's recent efforts to restart talks, do you take that as anything to, be, to pay attention to, or just
2: uh, more political rhetoric that's not going to matter? I, I to take you? it as nothing at all. Uh, Abbas has used every... Abbas restarts talks every time he has no other option, which suggests that it's, it's not the course he wants to take. These talks, a negotiated solution between Israelis and Palestinians, is so hard anyway that if you're trying to do it not wanting it, there's just no hope whatsoever.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And, uh, and Abbas uh, is, is, is a lame duck. I mean, he's at the end of, you know, he's in the 13th year of a four-year term or a five-year term. right? He won't call elections. Hamas wins in every poll that we have in the West Bank in the last 10 years uh, if elections were held. Um, he oversees a, a bit of a oppressive kleptocracy. Uh, that is deeply disliked. There are It's something like a two-to-one among Palestinians in the West Bank who want him gone, uh, in every poll consistently over a decade. Uh, and so he, he can't negotiate, and he always claims to want to negotiate whenever the Israelis appear to be advancing without him. Uh, so it's, it's completely meaningless, uh, unfortunately. When Abbas dies and we have a replacement, then we start to see whether Fatah can consolidate control of the West Bank, and come to the negotiating table. But that's not something that can happen until Abbas is gone.
1: Hmm. It's kind of same thing they said about Arafat, no? Towards the end. I I think they were right about it.
0: All right, so, so, Khabib, you're telling us that you think things are still on track, that that the side pushing for annexation is still making its
1: case.
2: Yes, in the forums where it matters, in the prime minister's office, in the army, in the strategic conversation between the Israeli... Uh, Prime Minister's office and the White House. Uh, the Netanyahu argument is persuasive and is serious and is thoughtful and is worth paying attention to. The fact that we can read 11 op-eds um, all agreeing that annexation is silly doesn't mean that Netanyahu is is, is an idiot. And, and there is a, a deep mm-hmm. thinking behind it. Uh, and I, frankly, I'll tell you the truth, it's not just that I'm playing the objective journalist. Uh, I really don't know who's right, whether... Netanyahu or Yadlin, mm-hmm. right? I'm absolutely convinced that the left, the hard ideological left is wrong on this. What the Europeans are insulted by is not what's going to save us in the Middle East in the future. So I, that just not, doesn't interest me. But this could be very stupid because of what it does to the Jordanians and the, and the Emiratis and the Saudis and, and mm-hmm. Iran, right? So that, that is a persuasive discussion. Um, well,
0: also the, the strategy of giving us no information, no details at all, isn't helpful for us to consider it well. Do you know what I mean? Like, it it
2: just means that we're guessing in the dark, so it makes the whole conversation much more murky. Yeah, it's, I think it's even more dangerous than that. It's not that Netanyahu has some ideas and he's not telling us. I don't think he knows. I don't think he knows what he's going to end up being able mm. to do, and so I don't think he wants to say, oh, I'm annexing the Jordan Valley, which he already, he's already said, I'm doing these big things, and now we realize he can't quite do all the things he announced and declared and you know publicly with maps 10 days before the September election. Um, uh, or a week before the September election, he made this big, big announcement of he's going to annex the Jordan Valley if he wins, right? Um, He doesn't know what he'll get away with, so he doesn't want to set us up to be disappointed or to set up his right-wing base to be disappointed. So he's not saying anything. And so here we are. We know nothing. He knows nothing. This mapping business, which is going to change lives, it's going to change lives of some Israelis, it's going to change lives of millions of Palestinians. If you can get between Janine and Shechem fast, That's two massive Palestinian population centers that uh, become uh, a united entity. And if you can't get between them fast because there's some enclave there, then they're not a united entity, and that's catastrophic for them. And so um, we don't know, the Palestinians don't know, and Netanyahu himself doesn't know.
0: And I I completely agree with that. Well, as murky as it is, thank you for helping us navigate it as always, Khabib. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Alan. Thank you, Mike. And I hope I can edit this. (laughs) Bye,
1: bye. (laughs)